So welcome to the Scripts and Scribes live stream show episode number nine. Thank you for spending part of your Saturday with us or whenever you're watching us or listening to this. Um, this Thursday, before we get started, this Thursday uh, on a special midweek SNS Live uh, episode number 10, we have a Fellowship Insider Tips uh, episode with Carol Kirshner, director of the CBS Diversity Writers Mentoring Program and director of the WGA Showrunners Training Program. And we'll be talking about what makes certain candidates stand out in an application, what the interview process is like, common mistakes uh, or errors that can disqualify an applicant, what a program will look like this year, obviously with COVID still a concern. And of course, take your questions in the live stream. That's this Thursday, uh, the 15th at 3 p.m. Pacific time. If you're applying to one of the fellowships, it should be a good one. But today we're talking about the manager and client relationship. And we've got on two guests, uh, a lit manager who was originally from Canada and got a start at William Morris and UTA before joining the Hollywood gang at Warner's uh, as a development exec and then launching his own shingle, Management SGC. Uh, he is Scott Carr. Welcome back, Scott. Thanks, Kevin. Hi, everyone. Uh, and his client, a screenwriter and filmmaker who has had five scripts, five, on the prestigious blacklist. That's not the paid service. That's the annual list voted on by industry insiders. So that's unbelievable. But, I mean, okay. Um, and a film he wrote and directed called Wildcat will be released in select theaters and on Apple Plus later this month. He's also sold scripts or been hired uh, to write for Fox, Paramount, Universal, New Line, Warner Brothers, and many, many more. Uh, as well as having authored two book series for Penguin Books, uh, one of which, The Thrifty Time Traveler's Guide, is set up at New Line. He is Jonathan Stokes. Thank you for joining us today, guys. The manager-client relationship is sort of what we're here to talk about today. And before we open it up to questions, which we'll do in a little bit for everyone in the chat, if you have questions for Scott or Jonathan about their relationship, about managers, about screenwriting, anything like that, we will definitely open it up. But first, I want to ask you guys a few questions. Uh, we're here to talk about sort of the working relationship between a manager and a client, sort of the introduction, the dynamics of how you work together and sort of expectations you have of each other. Um, so I guess let's start off at the beginning. How did you two first initially meet sort of who initiated contact and how did that go? Um, we we met in 2010. I was working as an executive at a production company at Warner Brothers, and I'd seen on a tracking board um, a post that Jonathan was out with a spec script at the time called The Right Man Hit, and he was with a different representative at the time. And I'd reached out to that rep and requested reading it, and... Uh, I thought it was fantastic. So I asked for a general meeting with Jonathan. He came into my office and we sat down and we got to know each other. And I was super impressed with his personality and his work ethic and how much he'd written and how committed he was to continue to write and to elevate his career. And so I just kind of became an advocate of his. And we started talking about a few projects internally, but I ended up leaving that company shortly thereafter and then moved over to work at UTA and Jonathan at the time was looking to make a change to his representation and he'd reached out to me or we'd stayed in touch and then I just had introduced him to the agency and he eventually became a client at UTA on the back of that. Yeah, I, I could add color to that from, from my perspective, I suppose. Um, just that I had been, um, you know, struggling and, and starving for many years. And uh, um, 
Yeah, I, I recently had a friend uh, share a letter that I wrote to him in uh, the aughts where I'm just describing having $17 in my bank account. And, you know, maybe if I get a, a painting job or dig a ditch over the weekend for my construction friend, I'll be able to make enough money to service the interest on my credit card debt. And so that's sort of my financial situation when I was uh, meeting uh, Scott for the first time at a general meeting. Um, this company that Scott worked for declared bankruptcy and mm. and uh, Scott was out of a job along with everyone else in the company. And I'd really connected with Scott in that meeting and enjoyed working with him, getting notes from him. So there was a period where our friendship was really pure. He had nothing to gain from, he had nothing to get out of me. I had nothing to get out of him. He was just a guy whose taste I liked. And as I was specking like crazy, I just started sending him my scripts and he would give me honest feedback. You know, he was not yet a rep, nor was he at a production company for that period of time. Um, so I think we just sort of had a genuine uh, uh, mutual appreciation society going on. Then when Scott joined UTA, um, let go of my prior reps that I'd been with for five and a half years and was totally unrepresented. And Scott said, I'm going to get you uh, signed here at UTA. And first, we're going to sell this script. And then we're going to sell this script. And then we're going to do this, that, and the other. And I thought, really? And um, he did everything he promised. Um, so yeah, actually, uh, yeah, if, if that's fun or interesting for the viewers, I can talk about how Scott signed me at UTA. Yeah, no, that'd be great. Um, I was teaching piano lessons at the time. And so anytime I had a meeting, I had to work it around my poor piano students. Uh, so Scott had a number of different agencies and, and folks interested in me. He generated all that interest. And when I came into my signing meeting at UTA, I'm just some poor schlub teaching middle C position to a bunch of second graders. And Scott brings me to UTA. It's this whole conference room table with, you know, six guys in suits come in and sit down um, they bring in a whole bunch of different trays of food and snacks. And I thought I maybe I was in the wrong room or something. When, when I first entered, the receptionist told me to sit at the head of the table. And I thought I, I would get in trouble if I sat at the head of the table. Because I'd been on general meetings where I'd gotten in trouble for sitting in the wrong chair. Like, don't oh. sit in that chair. That's Mark's chair. <laughs> so I'm just in my, you know, this swole chair. And all these reps came in and they all went around the table saying, you know, my name is such and such. I'll represent you on the film side. My name is such and such. I'll be on TV. And then finally, I asked, which one of you guys would be my agent? And they said, well, all of us. We're all on your team. So um, I made a big show of pretending that I would go home and think about it. Um, but, you know, I, I knew I was going to sign. And five days after I signed, Scott sold my script. I'll just know. So that was a pretty speedy sort of turn of events. Once it uh, the ball started rolling, it kind of kept rolling. Um, what was it about, other than his writing, obviously, uh, Scott, what was it about Jonathan that sort of impressed you? Because it, obviously when you're signing a client, when you're working with a writer, it's not just about the writing. There's, there's other aspects. Uh, that have to appeal to you, otherwise, 
you know, because your reputation's on the line and, and things like mm-hmm. that. So what was it about Jonathan that impressed you? Uh, when I met with Jonathan at the at the production company I was at prior to him getting repped at UTA, I was, that's kind of when I'm more just trying to get a sense of someone's creative sensibilities and inclinations and the way that they kind of operate in the room and how affable and communicative someone can be. And uh, Jonathan has a very disarming way about him. You can immediately feel like you can relax and just have a very honest, authentic conversation that just feels like you're having a beer with someone, which is kind of my favorite kind of general meetings. It's not mechanical. It's not really about the work just yet to the point at which you feel like you've almost spent too much time not talking about the work. So we might as well talk about kind of the reasons that were brought in. And then you, and I was, I was very impressed with the quality of his writing. He had a very Joe Carnahan, Tarantino-esque voice in the script that I had read, which I think is very, very hard to emulate and to find originality in something like that. Um, and then we started emailing shortly thereafter, and I'd sent him an idea, and then he immediately, within about 17 seconds, sent back like a treatment for something uh, based on a, on, a, on a fortune cookie of an idea that I'd been toying with. Um, so I was really impressed with his turnaround and his work ethic and his commitment to just diving in and rolling his sleeves up and engaging. Um, and you ultimately just want to work with someone who does the work and is passionate about he- he- being open to hearing someone's idea and then making it their own and then working through the creative process with that. And then after that, when I was kind of unemployed for a brief period of time, I Jonathan jogged my memory that, yeah, he had sent me some material of his that I had read and then sent back my thoughts. And he had a very, now we just lost him again, but we had a very gracious, um, he had a very gracious response. So I could just tell that his personality was the kind of attitude that you need to have with someone through a development process of the, of the representative relationship. And at mm-hmm. the time I wasn't even functioning in a, in a representative capacity. It was just a friend reading a friend's material and giving him notes and, and going from there. So when he came to me and needed some help finding new representation, I was more than happy to just try to do what I could to help him and it ended up working out in a self-serving way, but it wasn't really the intention because I gave him the choice to consider other representatives because I'd gotten to know a bunch when I worked at a production company. So I didn't just want to key him up for the place that I was currently working at after that. I put him out there and he did a number of meetings and just decided to go with that because he seemed to be most engaged in the meeting with the other reps. Mm-hmm. So um, it looks like John's on his way back in now. Yeah. Um, let's see. Okay, Jonathan. The the no ho dead zone. Yeah, I don't I don't I don't know what's happening. I'm sorry. No, no, no. <laughs> it's uh it's it's going around, I guess, the technical issues. Um so yeah. Scott was talking mm-hmm. about again what impressed uh him about you in terms of, of you know, the way you carried yourself and everything. What was it about Scott that 
obviously you wanted representation. You were at UTA. But what was it about Scott that said, you know what, I want this guy to rep me, represent me as a manager? What were the signs there other than obviously him from the very beginning, someone who believed in you early on? Um, what was um, it that you said, you know what, I'm going to go with Scott? <laughs> Uh, there were there were four qualities that stood out to me. Uh -huh. um, the first is that um, you go you if if you're lucky you go on a hundred general meetings and oftentimes ninety eight of them don't result in anything. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you meet a nice person, you have a nice chat, and then you may never talk to that person ever again. Um, Scott was instantly so proactive, where he had read that script and said. Um, I'm going to give it to so-and-so at WD who reps uh, a very specific actor because um, I think they'd be good for it. Um, so even though his production company wasn't going to do anything with it, he was trying to connect me with people who might have value in the script. He was like, he shared it with Franklin Leonard, I remember. Um, so just instantly doing things. And then rather than just have it be an yet another water bottle tour general meeting, um, he followed up and we started developing ideas together. So that level of productivity, uh, proactiveness, I found totally rare and totally refreshing. Um, secondly, Scott, I think, and I share similar backgrounds only in that we both came here with no connections and no money and had hard scrabble. Uh, we really had to both claw our way up. Um, Scott's origin story, I think, is, is actually far rougher than mine um, in terms of coming from thousands of miles away from Hollywood and just showing up in his car with 200 bucks in his pocket. <laughs> um, and I, I respect that tremendously, um, that, that work ethic. A third quality that, that Scott had was that he was deeply himself. Um, he was quirky. He um, was very much into bodybuilding at that time and had a two-gallon thing of water in the my general meeting with him because <laughs> he had decided he needed to drink a certain amount of water per day because of electrolytes or something. And the fact that he... There's a lot of conformity normally in Hollywood. And the fact that he was unabashedly himself was... I, I just I knew who I was dealing with authentically. Mm -hmm. And then the last quality was that he sort of see me. Like when I remember to this day, he looked at me in that general meeting. He said, why aren't you a studio writer? And I, I was like, I don't know. But he sort of recognized something in me that um, no one had ever really uh, recognized before. And so it made me loyal and made me want to work hard for him. No, that's great. I mean, this is our first sort of face-to-face-ish interaction, but uh, your personality-wise, I can see what Scott was talking about. You're very sort of easy to talk to. You're uh, very pleasant, and not in that sort of a boring, bad way, but sort of in, in a, uh, I like this guy, just right off the bat, so I, I can see that. And I know Scott, talking about Scott in terms of being genuine, uh, having known Scott for a number of years now, I don't know how long I've known you, Scott, for a, a, quite a few years. Uh, with Scott, he's always been very upfront and very, uh, and again, not in a bad way, uh, but you, with Scott, it's what you see is what you get. And he's not going uh, to lie to you, he's, he's going to tell you like it is, but he's going to do it in a way that's 
that's honest and genuine. So I think that that's that great that you guys sort of work together as well as you do because it, it does make sense. Um, I want. Yeah, I think when you're developing any type of authentic relationship, be it professional or personal, it has to be built on the foundation of trust, connection, loyalty, respect. Um, because beyond that, as you get into the throes of trying to develop a, a, a career in a competitive and challenging industry, um, that bond will be tested constantly because you do have to deliver bad news. You have to be honest about things that aren't working out. You have to address problems in communication and process head on. Otherwise, you're just not acknowledging the things that are ultimately going to disintegrate someone's potential for success. Right. Because you have to look at what's missing. You have to take a look at the gap. And so if you built a foundation prior to the that type of communication, I think you can navigate that minefield more effectively. Mm -hmm. Now, something that strikes me in Jonathan's resume that stood out, I mean, obviously, you've written for pretty much every studio in town, and you've got two books that you've, book series, I should say, um, one of which being developed, so you've got a lot going on. But one thing that sort of struck me, which is sort of unique, that you had five scripts on the blacklist, which I think maybe not financially as as uh, uh, beneficial as some of your other deals and things, but just sort of looking at it from, from above, that's pretty impressive. So what, and, and this applies to you as well, Scott, this question, what what is your, your strategy? What is your mindset in terms of, like, do you think about the blacklist in terms of a career strategy because you've done it multiple times or is it just something a byproduct of what you've written that just sort of happens because obviously as uh, for newer writers out there for emerging writers being on the blacklist is a huge benefit someone who has sold all over town is signed with a big agency who's got multiple book series being on the blacklist is probably not your priority so what was the mindset going in after you know, trying to get on the blacklist maybe the first time, and then after that, having been on it four more times, uh, both in terms of career planning on, on Scott's end, but also uh, in terms of, like, what you're writing, Jonathan, on your end. Mm -hmm. Well, I think, um, you know, because it's a, a list of unproduced screenplays, sure. I, I sort of think of myself as the, the biggest loser. Uh, um but yeah, I, I definitely, I think it's a dubious distinction, perhaps. But um, I love that the blacklist exists. And I love that there is a way for executives to vote on scripts that they they believe in the quality of. Because there is no other pure award for that. Um, not every writer is going to win the lottery of getting their script produced. And when it is produced that finished product might not represent what was actually on the page. Mm -hmm. Someone might be winning an Oscar for a screenplay that the director mostly did. <laughs> There's certainly been situations where that's happened. So the blacklist can be, I think at its best, a really pure distillation of this is, this represents the work of one writer. And that's so valuable to me and, and to every writer. I definitely try to always write to what I think is my that highest level of quality where I, Scott knows that I will put so much um, attention into the prose that will never make it on the screen. Um, that I could write a script faster if I just wrote, 
he walked in the door, you know, <laughs> rather than he strode in purposefully or what mm-hmm. have you. I mean, I'll always go back and read Cormac McCarthy, for instance, before writing a, a screenplay, just so I can have that, you know, that really terse prose that is as evocative as I possibly can make it in the least number of words or interesting. Oh. oh, we seem to have lost Jonathan again. Yeah, I think he's in a in an area that doesn't have like the greatest um, cell reception these days. Hmm. But um, he'll pop back in a few seconds, and then I'll let him finish. So then I'll kind of draft on that with okay. kind of like the representative strategic side of the blacklist hmm. and the purposes it can serve a writer early in their career and thereafter. That sounds good. Yeah. Um. So, uh, we will wait for Jonathan to come back in. If there are people in the chat and you want to have questions asked, you can just start dropping them in. And at uh, some point in a few minutes, we'll start asking some of those questions. So, if you have questions for Scott Carr, Lit Manager Extraordinaire, or Jonathan Stokes, uh, Screenwriter Extraordinaire, Author, um, please feel free to do so. Um, We will wait for Jonathan to come back. And hopefully that will. Oh, Here it comes. Okay. Here he is. Hey, welcome back. <laughs> Sorry about that. It's I okay. it never happens on Zoom, but it but maybe it's a Google Meetup thing or something. Yeah, I Sorry. Mean, we had a few issues with Google Meet before, which is why we switched to Zoom. Although. I don't. I don't know. I, Scott and Scott seems to be okay. So I don't know if it's too complicated. I, mm. I have no idea. Anyway, um, hopefully this will continue uh, unabated. But um, so you you were talking about um, uh, I don't know where we were. Um, I, the Google Meet yeah. cut me off because I was going on too long. But yeah, just just that I, I do try and write to what I imagine to be perhaps a Google a uh, uh, a blacklist level of quality, oh, right. whether it's open writing assignment or or what have you. It just gives me a bar in my mind of um, the level of detail and and the number of drafts I want to do to try and get something as right as I possibly can. Mm-hmm. And I think Jonathan's quality of writing and his voice speaks to kind of what the blacklist represents, where it really is about the writing and Jonathan, like he. Like you said, he puts a lot of um, purposeful attention to making sure that he's doing his best on the page, uh, ultimately servicing the story, of course. But just, you know, he's got a very strong cinematic lexicon and um, a very, uh, a very well-versed vocabulary and knows kind of like the most accentuating words that I think can, you know, create the emotional elements and the, the narrative momentum of the story. So I think that works out very well just for the reader. It's servicing, like, at this stage in the process, you're just there servicing a single person reading that screenplay. And it makes it a very enjoyable read that has people talk about the script, you know, want to vote for it. And then uh, in the early, speaking tactically, I guess, about the blacklist, in the early stages of someone's career, if the right writer represent, writes something that seems like it can be well, well represented on the blacklist and its representatives will definitely make sure that the script gets into the right hands 
Um, often when you're doing the first exposure of a screenplay for a writer, you're going out as wide as you possibly can to as many people as possible so they can start to build out that base of relationships. And that's usually the best chance of getting on the blacklist because tactically you're just going wide. And that just means from a volume standpoint, you've got the best chance of getting hitting the people that are voting. We're not looking at the list of people that are just blacklist voters. It's more about just the people in the industry that can be effective producers and executives that may share Jonathan's sensibility and appreciate his writing. Uh, and then that usually organically will, 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 will end up being um, getting someone on the blacklist if, if their material has responded well enough. And Jonathan, he had two scripts on the blacklist his first year because we'd gone out with his his touch point to the market from a representation standpoint at UTA, which was a script called Blood Mountain. But then that script that I had read at Warner Brothers, which was called The Right Man Hit, and had gone out from his previous representative, but hadn't sold or you know gotten maybe the kind of traction we thought it deserved. Um, we retitled it and then just exposed it more tactically to a production company that ended up selling it to Warner Brothers. And then upon the announcement and deadline that it had sold, that's another organic way for people to request the scripts because they're like, what's the script that just sold to Warner Brothers? Um, and then thereafter, all the other scripts, I think, are more a result of just because we get a little bit more specified in exposing material to Jonathan's relationships or people that are definitely more akin to the taste of the material. And that means you're dealing with a smaller crop of people. But at the same time, I think the quality of the writing is strong enough to like just get on the list because there's enough people that have read it that can get some on the list. Mm -hmm. um, and that just seems to happen whenever Jonathan writes a new spec and it goes out. It, I think all of them we've exposed have ended up on that list just because they're, they're some of the better scripts that go out any given year when it comes to... Um, the blacklist requirements from the voters. Mm -hmm. um, I did have another question sort of for you both, but before I do, there is a question from Hillary Van Hoos. Hopefully I'm pronouncing her name right, Hillary. Uh, she says, Scott, someone from my school suggested contacting agents or managers on LinkedIn in order to avoid rules about no emailing such individuals. What is your take on this strategy? Uh, I'm not on LinkedIn, and I don't know if LinkedIn is as popular among the Hollywood community. Maybe it is, um, because I know a lot of professionals are on there. I think if you're a writer starting out, like, you know, try as many outlets as you can. Maybe try one. If it doesn't seem as effective, try another. Um, I don't, I, people in this town may get frustrated at times with getting random emails from someone they don't know, but that's not an inappropriate method we're used to that so i don't think um hillary needs to feel like it's a faux pas if she finds the email of a representative online and then sends them a a, a succinct query um i would encourage that as well as the linkedin route um but really when you're a writer trying to access the industry you kind of like have to take like the no shame approach and just try to figure out any way to get someone's attention um, as long as you're kind of mindfully respectful of invading their space and trying to make it seem like you have something to offer them. Mm -hmm. And I think regarding the email, I don't think you should avoid necessarily emailing lit reps. I just think that a lot of reps have said, don't attach material. That's the big no, no. 
Uh, if you're querying, I mean, that's a normal part of business. Don't expect a response per se, because oftentimes they're bombarded by uh, uh, query emails and things like that. And don't just about, and make it brief because they're not going to read a, a two page email. But yeah, I don't think there's a, a, a rule against necessarily emailing. Yeah. If I get an email with someone attaching the material, I generally just as a courtesy will re respond in suggesting they don't do that. Hmm. Just because, you know, maybe they just don't know. Sure. So you might as well just be the person that tells them. And they're like, oh, I didn't realize. And then that'll maybe give them a better chance because they're not exposing themselves as an amateur or open themselves up to liability issues right from the outset. Right. Because I understand <laughs> why someone might think that's appropriate, but they just don't know. I remember when I, I didn't know my asshole from my elbow when I came to Hollywood in terms of the business. So I wish I had people that would just kind of tell me what not to do early. It would have been a great shortcut. Right. If, if I could add a, a little yeah. to that, I. Oh, we're going to lose them again. Oh. Well, I guess. It looks like we have a timer with Jonathan. It's like every <laughs> four minutes. Right. He's guaranteed to drop we off, lose which seems very, very specific. Uh, it's like his internet is like, you know, it's like it's holding onto a really heavy weight. And his arms start <laughs> it to quiver. It's like, I can't hold the connection any longer. And right. he drops it. And then it gets to kind of replenish its and come back in. Right. Uh, while we wait for Jonathan to come back, it's a question for both of you, but I can start with you, Scott. And it has <laughs> to do with expectations. What, as a rep, what are your expectations when you sign with a new client? In terms of what do you expect them to bring to the table? Uh, what do you expect them to be working on? What do you expect from them in terms of communication and that sort of thing? Yeah, once when you start out, especially like often, maybe the writer doesn't have the kind of awareness or traction out there. So it definitely means that they've got to be patient and allow me to do what I can do with their material and see how it turns out. Here comes Jonathan. Um, but there also has to be a willingness to be a partner in the process. It's not like you get a representative and now the phone's just going to let Jonathan get back in. Hey. I'm so sorry. I, I swear I've never dropped a Zoom before. It's just, so I, I'm answering a separate question, then we can go back to your sure. your advice on the emailing from young writers. But um, yeah, so in the early stages of the relationship with a new client, like I said, there should be a patience about just making sure we can get the kind of traction out there. But it's a partnership. So the writer has to be just as willing to roll their sleeves up and work with the representative, with their material, generating new material, working together on strategy, um, making sure that it's um, it's kind of treated like a marriage where it's like two people with vested interest in having that person's career be as successful as possible. And that's going to be grounded in communication, making sure that there's an openness and an honesty, um, that requests can be made, that they're open to, you know, having certain ideas being rejected or denied, like not taking it personally and really just having it be like what, is the most effective, efficient way of trying to accomplish things for um, the writer's needs after you've developed a real strong sense of kind of what their vision is, what their expectations are, and what they ultimately want to accomplish, realizing that that's a long road, a super marathon that we're going to take at every mile marker and constantly doing spot checks to see how it's going. Uh, so I think like the communication is so important that they're willing to just, you know, make sure they're willing to talk about anything and everything to uh, to just 
figure it out as you go. Mm -hmm. um, we've got a couple more questions in the chat, but before that, I want to answer the second half of this question, which uh, Jonathan, you were dropped at the time, but we had asked Scott what his expectations were, are when signing a new client in terms of uh, what they bring to the table, communication and expectations in general. When you first signed with your reps, what were your expectations going in? What were you looking for them to do? Just to get me out of piano teaching. <laughs> um, yeah, just just to just to get anything sold that they could. I had a war chest of, uh, I think I had thirty one completed screenplays at wow. that point that were just sitting in a drawer gathering dust, and so I just had enormous amount of material to heap on them. <laughs> um, so just any way in which they could monetize any of it. I will say that I wasted a lot of time writing um, frat pack comedies that had gone out of vogue by the time that Scott broke me in. So I have a lot of screenplays that really, that there was no way to ever monetize them. But they it's cyclical. Won't... Maybe they'll come back around. Right? <laughs> Maybe they'll come back around. And you'll be like Maybe... the... The John Hughes, the new John Hughes of uh, frat boy comedies in the 21st century, right? <laughs> right, right. Um, I, if, if I could circle back to yeah. uh, Hillary's question a second ago really quick, just because um, I relate to that question as a writer, which is just that I, I, every market opportunity will eventually get arbitraged out of existence. So as soon as, like in the 80s, actors figured out that they could show up at CAA and they befriend the front receptionist and then eventually get their foot in the door and have an agent consider them. But then so many actors started showing up at CAA when that worked that they got a security guard and they no longer allowed people to just come in the lobby and hang out and make friends with receptionists. Um, I, I happen to just read that in the Michael Ovitz book. So I think that's what's frustrating for screenwriters is you go to a Q&A and a screenwriter tells you how they broke in but that information is often already obsolete hmm. because we tried that now. Hmm. So um, it's constantly changing. And, and I, uh, if LinkedIn is, a, is gives you some kind of a new foot in the door because it's a surprising way to show up in a rep's inbox, I, I applaud your moxie and I say, go for it. <laughs> um. Okay, Ross G asks, is a single well-written polished script enough to compel a manager to represent a client or do you like to see unrepped writers have multiple finished and polished projects? Uh, that sounds like it's for me. Yeah, um, yeah I, realistically, I'm probably only going to consider one piece of material initially anyway. So you'd want to lead with your best foot forward. Um, and have a very polished, professional, ideally voluble, um, viable, exposable piece of material. or And then that will be enough for me to engage in a earnest discussion about the prospects of, is this person viable? If, if the material itself is something I feel I can expose in a meaningful way, like as a writing sample or as a, as a possible saleable piece of material, then that's really all I do need. I'd want to make sure the writer has some backup ideas, if not backup material, but it's not a prerequisite to expose them because often on the back of taking something out, if they've got something they can discuss or they can become open to getting a job off the back of that, then there's an opportunity to monetize and to, 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 to motivate that career forward. Um, 
so yeah so i i'm fine with like one piece of strong material i've signed clients i'm literally only having ever written one screenplay mm. and and just kind of like you just trust that they're gonna not a fluke and uh and 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 just you know hope it works out because it's it's not to, to every hundred scripts i read only half of one is probably something i'm really going to respond to from a representative so if you find one you don't want to just like arbitrarily just reject it on some sort of oh you don't have another piece of material you know i can't move forward with this i think that would be not a very i'd be a you know a myopic business model for myself mm -hmm. And then you have, on the other hand, you have someone with 31 pieces of material ready to go. Um, that's pretty yeah. impressive. Um, okay. Todd uh, Klinger uh, asks, Jonathan, can you talk a little about how you came to direct? Did you always have intentions to direct? Great. Yeah. Um, I was a theater geek in high school and uh, wrote and directed my first play in high school and loved it, loved working with actors. Um, I'm, I love acting. I'm terrible at it, but it only gives me more appreciation and respect for actors. So any chance I can get, I will do it. Um, having said that, you know, I'm 98% a writer and love writing. And if my entire, uh, what I facetiously think of as my career was to only ever be screenwriting, that would be a great life. Um, but, oh my gosh, get to getting to... Karl Marx talked about the uh, alienation of man from the product of his labor, where if you work in an assembly line for your whole life and you never see the, the, the chair that the assembly line makes at the end of the assembly line, it's really bad for you psychologically. And uh, if you're only ever writing and you don't get to see a finished thing, which happens to so many screenwriters who are trapped on the development treadmill, I think it's psychologically damaging. So getting to direct something and make it and um, if you screw it up, you're the one who screwed it up, not a whole bunch of other people beyond your control. That's enormously empowering and cathartic and uh, a wonderful process. It's very cathartic to be to know that you're the one that ruined your script introduction yes. rather than somebody else. No, I, that's hysterical, but that's great. Um, what was that? Uh, was it harder? Obviously, you've sold a lot of scripts, but was it harder trying to attach yourself being as a known working screenwriter to attach yourself as a director on uh, your, your script Wildcat? Um, not really because Wildcat is takes place entirely in one room. Hmm. So it wasn't like we we're asking for a hundred million dollar budget and aliens and chase scenes on the 405 freeway. So it, it was, I think a safe proposition that um, how badly can Stokes screw this up if we're in one room with a, just all dialogue for 90 minutes. Um, Todd also asks, Scott, are there particular genres you're attracted to when considering accepting a read from a blind query, or is it all about the log line? Uh, well, usually the log line is emblematic of the genre, um, but I, uh, yeah, like if it, from a logline standpoint, if it feels like it can fit into the box of a viable genre, it's preferable. I find if it doesn't, if it has a, if it's not a conceptual idea, it's going to be entirely execution contingent. It's hard to take a flyer on a new writer. So I think writers 
starting out that have absolutely no access to the industry really have to be thinking about conceptual log lines so that is enough of a trigger for someone to want to read it otherwise the reason we would read it is because it was referred to us or someone says i read this script and it's great read it but if the idea is not strong enough i'll probably pass on those just on the, at the email stage so in terms of but in terms of genre like you know my taste is pretty prolific in the sense that I really have like all different kinds of stories and movies and TV. Um, when it comes to the cyclical nature of the industry, like sometimes you're leaning and in, more interested, leaning into what feels like is just more um, a sexy genre out there, like uh, an elevated or high concept horror or romantic comedies or comedies seem to be coming back in the streaming space. Um, but still it comes down to the strength of, you know, that conceptual log line in that sense too, because I still, even if it's a new writer or an established client, I still got to get on the phone and get people to want to read it. Ideally not just read it because I told them to read it. There is, I can get people to read stuff just because I said, read this because they know me, but ideally I want them to be invested in the idea I'm selling to them. So preferable if the writer's done their work and given me something to set them up to win with the person I'm talking to. Mm -hmm. Um, so when we're talking about the back to the writer or the client manager relationship, at what point do you guys as as a team decide to bring in an agent? Is it right away because two heads are better or three heads are better than two? Or is it strategic? We want to do it right when we're at the point where a sale, we feel sales imminent or we need help um, get, you know, keeping the momentum going, at what point do you find bringing an agent in is beneficial? Uh, as close to potential monetization as possible, mm -hmm. because the agency is a, a vehicle for transactions and packaging and trying to bring things in the market that can lead to um, work that, you know, gets gets everybody paid. You bring them in too early, and if you're not ready, you could start to languish down the list, mm -hmm. and that might work against the momentum you're trying to create. Um, and the agent's purposes beyond like, you know, their strategy and their, and, and their packaging capabilities is that they have, they, they have the permission to sell material. So it's someone I bring in usually when I want to bring, when I want to bolster the, want to both legitimize and bolster what I'm trying to accomplish for the writer. And, and Jonathan, how you talked about this in the email when we were first sort of uh, coming up with what we were going to discuss on the episode. And you had mentioned something that I thought was interesting, the evolution of a relationship between a client and a manager, because that's not usually what we talk about. Usually we talk about how do you get a manager and what the managers are looking for when you're starting off in your career. How has the relationship sort of evolved? And, and in terms of as a writer, how have your responsibilities and your workflow, how has that you know, changed and, and matured as you guys have been working together for a number of years? Wow. Yeah, I and mean, Scott and I have been working together for 11, going on 12 years. Yeah, 11 years, let's say. So uh, it does evolve a lot over time. I would say that for me, a big essential part of the relationship is the coaching. Mm -hmm. um, that I, um, Scott is always going to be light years ahead of me in understanding the business etiquette 
and sort of business acumen of screenwriting. There are chess games within chess games that I'm simply oblivious to. I'm quite happy to just be um, a writer off thinking my thoughts, taking long walks and uh, reading my Hemingway. <laughs> but Scott is there in the, in the trenches every day, understanding how Hollywood is changing every five seconds. So Scott and I have evolved, I think over 11 years is coaching that he had to do in the first few years just to educate me on the business and how things look from the perspective of an executive. Um, and frankly, there just continues to be so many situations where you, you never step in the same river twice, um, where um, if there's 10 different executives involved in a project, you know, with two different production companies and a studio, there can often be very complex, thorny situations to navigate. And Scott is always going to be wildly better at that than I am. And uh, I'm going to always benefit and need that time for Scott to explain to me the intricacies of this, this sort of Game of Thrones level um, political situations that screenwriters can find themselves embroiled in um, and help and hold my hand through those processes and just um, help me keep my eyes on that ball. Mm -hmm. And that leads me to another question I thought would be interesting is, uh, Scott, how much are you willing to handhold for a writer that you sign initially? Like, how much education are you willing to bestow and how much do you expect a newer writer to actually have before they they come in to the business? Uh, frankly, whatever it takes for as long as it takes. Like, there hmm. shouldn't be limitations put on the, on like, you know, obviously there's going to be a certain level of, uh, of education and intelligence that a writer's going to hopefully develop where they're going to get the rules of the game per se. But like Jonathan said, like it's a constantly evolving organism. So there's going to be things that, you know, I'm always going to be willing to talk to someone like maybe they're, this is the first time you're hearing this, even though you're many years into your career, because it wasn't relevant before or the, or the game has changed or you're at a different level and constantly having to have kind of these evolutionary conversations. Um, so I have a, I have a real patience about that. And I think kind of like, the, the, you know, the, in, in the path to to mastering something, you know, the, the, the teacher needs to always be willing to be the student. So there's a humility about it, which I want both of us to have. So I'm constantly out there learning every day or as, as much as I can. I want that to be the same type of mentality that the, that the writer also. So that they never, you never kind of think I figured it out. There's mm -hmm. things you're going to feel an instinct about and you're going to trust those instincts, but you do have to be willing to kind of challenge whether or not you know something, because once you think you know something, you could be complacent and then no longer be willing to grow and then miss an opportunity or step into something that you thought you could avoid, but not realizing that it had changed enough to have that no longer apply. So I'm, very open to just kind of very thorough, deep, even over communicate or redundant communication. Because sometimes it, you have to hear something over and over and over again to have it really resonate in a way that, you know, and the time where you're at in the timing of it all as well. We, we listen to different filters. We hear things at different points in our evolution as human beings. So I don't mind having very repetitive conversations as long as it takes to service the client's growth. Mm -hmm. 
if, if, if I can piggyback on that, Kevin, um, I only have the experience of my own rejections and I only have the experience of my own experiences, whereas Scott is going, is having this multiplied by 20 writers or 30 writers, or if you can add on to that, his experience at UTA, where he would be on the phone with hundreds of writers and hundreds of experiences. Um, so he's always going to have a level of perspective that um, I will never catch up with. And I, I think that as a, uh, a writer, you're called upon to be extremely sensitive in order to be a good writer. You have to be, have a ton of access to your own emotions if you're gonna be any good at a writer. But then in the career of the screenwriter, you have to have this sociopathic level of emotional detachment in order to weather the slings and arrows that are of rejection and, and pain that can come at you over the course of the screenwriting career. And so with, with Scott, I can give Scott sort of my unvarnished emotional reaction to a piece of bad news. And once I've sort of vented it on Scott, I've expiated it from, from me and um, then when I get on the phone with the executive or whatever, I can speak rationally and without any sort of emotional venom because I've dumped it all on Scott beforehand. Right. <laughs> um, yeah, there's a lot of uh, the emotional components of the job and the sensitivities that we deal with. Because as a, I, I face the same level of rejection because I'm committed to trying to expose something if it doesn't always work out then i'm going to feel that too because there's going to be a loss on my part time money but just feeling bad that we didn't accomplish our goal and that's human but also like sometimes i have to this is that goes to the evolution of the relationship is there's death there's still going to be points in a writer's career where they expose a piece of material to me an idea to me that i just don't think is going to be the best use of their time or they just didn't stick the landing well enough and like just yesterday, I was on a call with a client and, you know, I'd read something that they'd sent to me in an early nascent stage. And I could just tell every instinct was screaming, this is not going to work for them. This is not going to go the distance in the market. This is not going to be the best representation of on the backs of what they've just done. And I read it and I kind of have that sinking feeling of like, I have to have this conversation with this person who I know has spent like weeks investing in this idea and they're taking it very seriously and they have no idea that this is a car driving off a cliff um so i have to come in and grab the wheel and turn it away from the cliff before they do because they're just kind of driving towards the cliff not realizing it so those conversations i think are a real testament to the evolution of a relationship where you can get on the phone with someone and in you know the right tone the right verbiage drop the bomb that that this is going to burst you know i'll always be open to the process of being convinced and made wrong but i find usually what i have to say often resonates if they're in the right place and they'll trust me and not want to further waste their time or mine and then we'll pivot on the back of that but that is always like as, as hard as it is to call up as the messenger, like that's not as hard because i'm just the deliverer i'm just delivering news to someone else's opinion and my job is just to Give, be transparent about that so I don't sugarcoat so the client knows what wasn't working. But when it's my opinion that has to like shut down the process, mm -hmm. that's always the hardest thing in my job is to have to like assert my opinion as some sort of like fact that well, this is going to be the end of the road for this project in such a way that they don't feel like they regret or doubt that that coaching or that decision. Um, 
And I think if the relationship isn't strong enough, like I've had, I've been in early stages of a relationship and had to do that too often to the point at which I can tell it's just so discouraging that this person's not getting it there. And it can be kind of deconstructive to the foundation. Uh, so that's why it's good to lean into people's strengths and have a couple of wins in the beginning. And then it's easier to kind of like, because every time you try to build your career, it's going to be more challenging because you're going to be at a higher level and there's less people there that, you know, that are, but they're, they're, they're better at what they do. So you've got to kind of continually being upping, upping your own game. Otherwise you just start to level off. Mm-hmm. Um, got a couple more questions here. Um, there's one for Scott, one for Jonathan. I will throw the question for Jonathan first. Todd asks, Jonathan, at the end of the day, what type of movies do you want to be known for? Wow. Uh, movies that don't suck. That's, <laughs> that's a good that's category. The bar I mean for. <laughs> um, I like Scott. I love every genre. If I was a smarter or savvier writer, I would pick one genre and become known for that. It would be, it would make Scott's life easier, I think, because he'd be able to market me more clearly. But for me, whatever script I've just written, I want to go and write the opposite genre next, hmm. which is a terrible career choice. Right. You should, you should capitalize on any successes you have, but um, I just I just love all of them. Um, Todd also asks Scott, how did did you develop your sense of story, and when did you start reading tons of scripts? Well, I started developing a sense of story. I think at a, at a you know, I always came to this town thinking I would be in a more creative role, like what Jonathan does. But like, so I went to film school and I started writing scripts and reading the screenwriting books. And I was doing everything that a young writer would do prior to working in the industry. And then when I came here and I realized it's first and foremost a business and I realized I didn't know anything about the business side of it. My first job was working in the William Morris agency. And then I realized kind of the whole underbelly of Hollywood. And that's when you have to read a bunch of material. I'm like, Oh my God, these scripts are so much better than I've ever written. I can't be a writer. Um, but I started realizing I could identify good material and I could identify maybe the issues with material conceptually or in the execution and just, you know, present my opinions on that that hopefully resonate for the writer. So I was doing coverages at, at William Morris for my boss. And then I went off and worked at a, at a production company where my job was literally development and having to read a bunch of scripts and working and interfacing with those writers on a creative capacity. So develop a certain skill set for that over those several years of every day reading a new script having an opinion it's literally my job to have an opinion and to not be ashamed of my opinion and to trust my instincts and develop the skill set to interact with someone in a way that hopefully can penetrate for them and, and support and serve their needs to improve it um so it was definitely a long time coming from a young age up until like eventually every day of my life in the job itself Mm-hmm. Uh, we do have uh, more questions but before that i just wanted to mention that uh jonathan you've got a youtube channel let's plug your youtube channel you have uh well i'll let you explain it why don't you tell us what your channel is and, and what you do on your channel <laughs> sure it's brand new the channel is called raising the stakes and it's uh me just making video essays about story theory and story concepts for writers or for executives or for anybody. Um, 
obviously this is, you know, my life's passion and what I'm obsessed with. And, you know, the same way that Scott put in his 10,000 hours that he was describing with development, every writer puts in their 10,000 hours where, you know, for me, it was sitting on the floor of Barnes and Noble because um, I couldn't afford any of those screenwriting books. And um, I would just wear a hole in that carpet sitting there for hours on end. Um, there's two shelves at Barnes and Nobles of screenwriting books. And I just didn't stop until I'd read all of them. Wow. And then, you know, watching every movie with the stopwatch, like every young screenwriter does take, taking down all the beats. Um, and so I, I just love this stuff. And I love the YouTube community of people just sharing information the same way you do, Kevin, just for free, you're offering aspiring writers this incredible resource. I wish that scripts and scribes had existed back when I was an up and coming screenwriter, demystifying uh, a manager like Scott and getting to hear straight from the horse's mouth what he does and how that works. It's an amazing resource. So how can I pitch in? How can I contribute to to YouTube or to screenwriters? Um Maybe one tiny thing that I can do is make video essays where I talk about concepts like the objective correlative um, and explain and demystify these things that I think are really clutch to writing. And also concepts that I wish that everyone works with writers had. Um, I wish we all had the same vocabulary in talking about these concepts. I think um, for writers and for producers, for executives, we should all be speaking the same language when we talk about development. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think, you know, I, I, I'd seen obviously all the, the essays John put together. I know how much time it takes. And he's frankly someone that doesn't have that kind of time, but he makes his time available to do it. And I think um, uh, an important tenet of success is your willingness to give back. Because I believe you can only receive as much as you give in life. So when you reach a certain echelon and you've experienced enough that you feel that you can then codify it into some sort of like succinct way like you do, Kevin, and like John is doing with his channel, um, I, I think it's a very encouraging thing to have us, this community, feel like we're all in this fight together. And that, you know, when you see successful people sharing their knowledge for free with no real nothing like you could get nothing out of it like there's no monetization of it there's no real satisfaction in the sense that you're not interacting with people directly it's just you put something out there and hope that people watch it because you want them to benefit from it because maybe it'll make their journey a little bit smoother that you know this is going to be a a, a a more succinct a synthesized expression of these concepts and these ideas so I'm really supportive of what Jonathan has done with his channel and, you know, his, his knowledge and experience and expertise. Yeah, I, I've been shocked at how supportive Scott has been because it's, it's a terrible use of my time. <laughs> Remember your screenwriter perspective, it's just, it's just horrendous. But my screenwriting mentor is John August, and I think there's no screenwriter out there who's done more than John August for writers. And that guy just spends time every single day of his life whether it's on the board of the WGA advocating, you know, negotiation with the NBA or whether it's John, I guess, you know, creating um, Highland software or, um, or the Scribner's podcast, of course, it's just every day of his life, he's helping writers aspire to, to that level that John, I guess, has achieved with how much he gives. But I do, um, I do love story structure and I, uh, 
it's and I love teaching as well. So mm-hmm. it's it's a happy marriage of my two interests. We'll I think a- the metrics of someone's legacy when they're when they look back is like how much time they devoted to themselves and how much time they devoted to others. Right. And they're in the early days, you have to devote more time to yourself because you don't have anything really to give. You know, you're, 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 you don't really have the platform to be taken seriously. But as soon as you've gotten to a place where you feel like you can be a contribution, you should then make time to try to be that contribution to people out there such that you feel that you can be, you know, an inspiration in there. And then at some point, you'd be surprised how much how efficient someone can be about managing their time between taking and giving throughout the process. And then eventually, you know, when you become successful, where you can really pick what you want to work on, when you want to work on, that's why it might seem astounding that someone at like John Ox's level can seem like he has, how can he give so much? Because I think he's able, he, he's, he, the metrics is now like he, he devotes just as much, if not more time to others because he makes so much more per sale, so much more per script. And he knows how to spend his time. So he has so much more time that he's not wasting it anymore. Oh. And I think that does happen as you become more and more successful, as you become much more picky about the commodity of your time. And then you want to you want to give it back as much as you can. And mm-hmm. I think that's the absolute best philosophy and mentality for the karmic levels of success and how we generate and attract them. Um. Jonathan, I, I wanted to say we'll post a link to your channel uh, in the description below. But I also wanted to say, is there a particular video that you feel would be a great starting point or jumping off point? Would it be the first video, or is there somewhere in there that you think, oh, this would be is a great representation of the channel? If you like this one, then you should definitely. Uh... Oh gosh, yeah, just start at the beginning. I, I I put out the first five videos. I'm calling that season one. Okay. Season two is is maybe eighty percent done. I hope to release it in a couple of weeks, um, but they they are somewhat chronological in okay. that. Explain suture in the second video. Then from then on, I can use the word suture without explaining what suture is. <laughs> gotcha. Um, okay, a few more questions, and then we're gonna sort of wrap it up. I know we had a few technical dif- difficulties and started got off to a little bit of a late start, but. Uh, I don't want to take up your whole weekend. We do appreciate you coming on. So we do have a few more questions. If anyone else has a question, drop it in now. Uh, Let's see. Farzan asked, uh, question, Scott, do you develop ideas with your clients before a client goes into writing the draft, or do you let them write their work? Uh, Then you will decide if it's good enough script for the market. It really, it's it's circumstantial. It depends on, you know, the idea when I'm exposed to it, like, like I've had clients that have given me just like the kernel of an idea. Like there's this movie that comes out in theaters in Australia next month called June again by this talented young filmmaker, JJ Lewin love. And he just pitched me like the log line. And then, so from that log line, we spent time developing an outline that was a few pages long. Then we did a treatment that was like 10 pages long. Then we did a lookbook because he wanted to direct it. So we want to get a strong sense of his vision. And, you know, he always initiates that, but I'm giving notes on or I'm contributing to that. Then he writes a draft and I give notes on the draft and we do several drafts of that until I feel like it's finally at a point where it can trigger interest in the market. Because once you do that, there's no pulling it back. That's that's kind of like going to be the representation that the market has of it. And, you know, and that just becomes a, you know, as long as it takes that with Miss Sloan, I was, that was a similar process with me as well from 
that was the first draft, not the idea, but we did a number of drafts. And with Jonathan, I've done both. Like sometimes we've developed it at a very early stage and talked about it. And like Wildcat, every word of that script is the word that's on the movie. I don't think there's any of my ideas in that entire screenplay because they just weren't required. It was just like, okay, let's figure this out. It just depends on the state of the material and the, and the left at the point at which I'm engaged in the process. But um, yeah, I'm kind of open to whatever kind of gets us to Oz. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and Todd asks, Jonathan, what's your usual day like these days? Uh, when were you able to quit your day job? <laughs> um, yeah, so I had been starving and struggling for so long that when Scott started selling scripts, I was not going to quit piano teaching for anything. I was terrified that the day I quit piano teaching, almost superstitiously, the screenwriting would dry up. And so it almost got to the point of an intervention where Scott and the agents had to be like, dude, seriously, because they'd be negotiating the sale of the screenplay. And I'd be like, got to go. guys." I'd be, you know, meeting with the VP at Warner Brothers and be like, uh, guys, I got to get to my two o'clock. And little do they know I'm teaching middle C position again. Um, so, yeah, I think that I had. Yeah, it, I remember like being flown to set to go um, work with Will Smith for a week in Philadelphia and having to call on my piano students and be like, <coughs> I'm, guys, I'm, I think it's learned. I, just, I think I might feel better in one week, <laughs> maybe eight days. And so I, I gradually, I also happen to love piano teaching. So I gradually, the number of piano students that I could take on got smaller and smaller. But I think I was a screenwriter for a year and a half Going on, I think I went on 110 general meetings my first six months as a screenwriter while being a piano teacher. Wow. So it was, it was preposterous, uh, it, a terrible use of my time. But um, I just, you know, I'd starved for 11 years. I wasn't going to quit piano teaching until I absolutely had to. Mm-hmm. I remember saying my goal was to kill those piano students' dreams of being a piano teacher, of being a piano student, because you had to, you had to fire them all. Scott was going through the, uh, the phone book looking for piano teachers and then emailing all your students, Here, here's a great piano teacher, <laughs> to try to get them to switch so that you don't have any more clients. And just well, to... it's actually a very gratifying milestone as a representative to be able to work with someone when they're unable to spend all their time writing and to be there with them when they can transition into full-time writing. Like, it, to me, it's a, it's a very, I take that, that moment very seriously, and I understand the sacrifice and risk they're taking to go from a relatively stable job to being a freelancer for the rest of their life. Mm-hmm. Where unless you take a job on a broadcast television series where they work 40 weeks a year guaranteed like Grey's Anatomy, there's no job security in writing. Uh, so it takes a tremendous amount of confidence and fortitude and trust to go down that path. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I remember inviting Scott to, I, I lived in a three bedroom apartment in Silver Lake with four roommates, some of whom had girlfriends. <laughs> so I lived in squalor. And I remember when I finally got my first little one bedroom apartment in Hollywood, thanks to screenwriting, um, that my first place I'd ever rented on my own, I invited Scott over and was like, look at this place. (laughs) It's 900 square feet and it's just me because my my room in Silver Lake was 100 square feet. 
Oh, wow. <laughs> by 10 foot. So, uh, yeah, I, I hope that it's gratifying for Scott to sort of see the writers make that transition away from the piano teaching and, and into other things. Is that the was that the motivation for you to write so many frat comedies? Because <laughs> you were like stuck in one in Silver Lake. <laughs> <laughs> I guess so. I mean, in the early aughts, that was everything. It was all Judd Apatow movies. That was what was getting made. Right. I didn't know enough to know that Judd Apatow doesn't <laughs> Stokes to write a script for him. You know, Seth Rogen's perfectly capable of going and writing his own screenplay. Right. So I was writing screenplays that I think really had no chance of ever being made. Um, okay, here's another one. Uh, I'll throw that to both of you guys as content creators. Um, there's so much content out there. It's sometimes difficult for someone starting out to sift through and find the useful stuff and correct advice. So, so uh, any advice on all the advice? So I guess, how do you discern what's helpful and what's not what's good and what's just chatter? Oh, it's so hard to answer. I think you'd have to be a voracious consumer of information and then you have to develop um, one, an instinct for what feels like it resonates with you and what lands with your truth, but also look for commonality in some of the advice where you've heard the same thing said by several people that seem to be on the level and also researching the people that are giving you this advice. So it seems like they have a business, they've been successful, they have results. They have, you know, they have a reputation that's taken seriously. Just, you know, use Google to vet the people that are giving you information so you can tell it's not um, someone just looking to self-promote and talk out of their ass. Um, and the platform which they're talking on, like if someone's on your show, Kevin, I think they've been vetted. They, you, you don't bring people on your show that, you know, probably don't have something to say that's a contribution on the level that's going to be genuinely good advice for most screenwriters. So I think going to the outlets that feel like they actually have a reputation for bringing in the right people. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so it's kind of like just the overview, I would say there. Yeah, I, I agree. I think it's a champagne problem that there's too much information now um, because I remember when there was no information. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember stumbling across AOL chat room posts by Ted Elliott and Terry Rossium in finding the holy grail because it was an actual working screenwriter giving their opinions on screenwriting. Um, but I, having listened to script scribes for years and, and now watched script scribes since you've gone on YouTube, I agree with Scott, that's a reliable source that's vetted. Um, but read everything, even the worst screenwriting books that I've read, there's 10% in there that's still useful. Mm. Right. Um, I guess piggybacking on it, on that, what are some other sources that you think are exceptionally helpful? Maybe two or three that each of you think is, would be useful to, uh, uh, emerging screenwriters, filmmakers out there. I'm sure I'll, I'll go first. I would say if, if you haven't read here with a thousand faces, what are you even doing in this town? Just go drive back to Connecticut <laughs> if you want to be a screenwriter. If you haven't read, um, and if Here with a Thousand Faces is too much, then read Christopher Vogler's Writer's Journey, which distills Joseph Campbell into a more digestible format for screenwriters. Um, but really just, oh my gosh, go all the way back to Aristotle's Star Poetics, go to George Polsey, which is 36 dramatic situations from 1836. 
um, and just work your way up chronologically from there. Um, Michael Ho, Christopher Vogler, uh, read some uh, read some theorists like uh, uh, Vladimir Pra, perhaps. Um, just go to Barnes and Noble and just have at it. Mm -hmm. Got two or three um, things. Oh, sorry. Uh, I um, God, and admittedly, it's been a while since I've read kind of like a legitimate screenwriting book. Um, usually like the thicker ones like story by robert mckee or seven basic plots by christopher booker um are ones that i think have you know stood out to me i'm i'm a big proponent of just reading professional screenplays hmm. like i think you could or watching movies like obviously there's a lot of things that you can learn in terms of the craft from the didactic side of reading the books that break it down but i think you can learn a lot through osmosis by just reading screenplays that are sold as spec scripts or reading the screenplay of a film that you really respect. So you can see kind of what the architecture of that movie looked like on the page. Right. Because you have to know what your role is as a writer versus the role of the filmmakers that transpose that. And I think a lot can be learned when you can just read the screenplay and then watch the movie or vice versa and then interpret kind of, you know, what it ultimately looks like on the page as kind of the blueprint of the blueprint. Mm -hmm. Did you? Yeah, have I, I would say. Oh, sorry. You have to have both. Yeah, you have to have both. Like, if if one person only reads screenplays, they will never be a good screenwriter. If another person only reads theory books, they will never be a good screenwriter. You can't become a good chef just by eating meals. You have to go to culinary school and learn how to chop. Um, you can't become a good composer by only listening to music. You have to go to mm -hmm. Juilliard and you have to learn music theory. So I, I think some marriage of both. Hollywood's filled with execs that have read 3,000 screenplays but can't write a script, right? right. So you have, to, I, you have to have both. Right. And on that note, thank you, gentlemen, for spending part of your Saturday with us as well as to all of you watching uh, and or listening, I guess, after the fact for spending a little bit of time with us. Uh, before we go, we just want to say uh, this Thursday at 3 p.m. Pacific, uh, we're going to have an episode on fellowships uh, with insider tips from CBS Fellowship Director Carol Kirshner. Um, what's the best place to for our uh, audience to find you guys? Sorry to find me? Yeah. Twitter? We'll have you, we have your Twitter link, I think. In the uh, description. Yeah, I don't, I don't really tweet that much. I... Facebook, my friend. Yeah, I'm, I'm just, you know, if you if you wanna if you wanna find me, you'll find me. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, Jonathan <laughs> we'll, says the humble Canadian. <laughs> uh, Jonathan, we'll have a link to your uh, uh, YouTube channel. Where else can people find you? It looks like we lost Jonathan for the next thirty seconds. So he, Jonathan, does have a uh, the YouTube channel, which he'll send out. Yep. He has a Twitter that you know he, he's like me. We don't make a lot of tweets. Um, you know, I think Jonathan's YouTube channel is probably the best way to get a sense of what he's trying to contribute to young writers. And then I know he also has a website, JonathanWStokes.com, that has shown all the books that he's read and, you know, a resource of things that, you know, he's been working on for a number of years. Yeah, we'll, we'll link all that in the description below. So to make sure that uh, everyone can find uh, Jonathan. And if they really want to find you, they'll, they'll find you, I guess, too, Scott. Um, yeah. So <laughs> thank you guys all for spending part of your day with us we appreciate it again we'll hopefully we'll see you guys uh thursday afternoon and we will see you next time thanks bye thanks yes. kevin thanks for tuning in everyone